0: Hi, my name is Yahav, and I was born and raised here as an Israeli and as a Zionist. During the past few years, I've gone through a process of questioning the narrative I grew up with regarding this land we live in and the people living on it. This process led me to learn more and more until I reached a place of solidarity with the Palestinian people and their struggle for liberation. As I became more active, I became less afraid to voice my opinion. Over time I've become more outspoken regarding my politics on social media and it reached people who were very surprised to hear my opinions. They asked if there are more people that share these opinions in my community and were especially curious about what exactly happened that made me change my mind so drastically. Answering these questions would take a long time so I decided to create a podcast about it where every episode is a one-on-one heartfelt conversation with an activist who in one way or another supports the same cause as me. Each episode tells the story of a journey that one individual made that led them to be the activists they are today. Each of these people has their own unique path that I believe anyone can learn from, whether you're a Palestinian or a Jew living here or abroad, or just anyone who feels strongly about this subject and wants to hear these voices. You're welcome to join me in this conversation and let me know what you think. My contact information is in the description of this episode, and it would mean a lot to me to widen the circles of this conversation and create an interactive platform to approach, discuss, and unfold more around these topics. I hope you enjoy getting to know these beautiful souls who I have the privilege to call my partners in building a better future for all people between the river and the sea. In this episode, I want to introduce you to Sharon. Sharon is an activist and a longtime friend of mine. And though he shares his name with a former leader of the Israeli government who has caused the Palestinian people a lot of pain, I ask that you try and give him a chance. He's a talented artist and photographer who uses his medium to create change in his society's perceptions. He is also a community organizer who spends every waking hour connecting between people and leading spaces that use art and culture as tools for co-resistance. Enjoy the episode. Hi Sharon. Hi. So introduce yourself. Tell me who you are, where you grew up, where your parents are from, what kind of upbringing did you have?
1: I was born here in Invered to a mixed families of people from all kinds of different places. From one hand, my mother was born here as well and um, her mother was not Jewish and was kind of linked her own uh, story to the stories of the Jews in Europe she was part of she was christian dutch and she joined the resistance and uh,
0: this is your grandmother
1: this is my grandmother and after the war she just she didn't want to to be part of Europe anymore she didn't want to anything from this uh, land anymore and she decided to join the Jews and help them build their country.
0: And did she convert?
1: And when she came here, they like asked her a few questions and uh, converted her to Judaism.
0: Oh wow! It was much easier before. Uh, yeah. Before all the institutions took over. She gave
1: up <laughs> her like Dutch passport. She's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go be with the Jews over there in Palestine.
0: This was before the state of Israel.
1: Before the state of Israel. I think at some point after the war she found a way over here
0: so she joined the Jewish people mm-hmm. and she she married a Jewish guy
1: so she married a Jewish guy back then in Europe in a way as part of combining her fate with uh, with the Jewish people and when they came here I think uh, like even what the first days is the her husband told her, okay, this is where we're going to be. You're going to be a mother. You're going to raise our children. You'll stay at home. And she she was a nurse. Mm. And she really wanted to to practice um, her profession and go help in any way she can. There was a lot of conflicts and wars at that time. And when he told her like she needs to stay at home, raise kids, cook and clean, she said, yeah, sure, and... Next morning, she was gone. <laughs> 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 it was the last time she, uh, she saw him.
0: She took the kids?
1: There was no kids at oh, that point. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs>
1: and then she met uh, my grandfather. And he really wanted to live in Tel Aviv. And she kind of pulled off the same uh, <laughs> the same uh, <laughs> drill. And she told him, listen, I want to live in this uh, village. Ein Verde was just uh, founded. If you want to go to Tel Aviv, you can go to Tel Aviv. I'm going to be here. And well, he joined her and they built a home over here.
0: And your father's side?
1: My father was born in Haifa to, what would I describe the best today, a Jewish-Palestinian family. What does that mean? So it definitely took me a while to understand this definition, but... um, My dad's family dates back the longest that we found to 1070 in this land. So a very old Jewish family that lives on this land continuously for a while now. Um, They were mostly up in the north. The origin comes from a village called Alma, who went through a lot of changes and shifts. It was a Jewish village and... Slowly transformed transformed into a Muslim village, a Palestinian village, and then uh, after the War of '48, it became again a Jewish uh, settlement. So we didn't have too much of a Jewish affiliation in this house. Like we rarely celebrated Jewish uh, holidays over here. My grandfather, my mother, my mother's dad was a communist. And I did not believe in God in any way. And my dad also didn't come from like a rich Jewish tradition. So there was never a strong Jewish identity being held in the house. There was always a lot of um, uh, different cultures that affected uh, the culture in the house. Like most of the books were in, in Deutsch and German.
0: Like what does it mean to be a Jew? When you were a kid
1: I never really understood that like we had a story in the family I remember that like my mom when she came to the second grade like she started the second grade and suddenly she came back home crying and my grandmother asked her like why are you crying and she said well like that, uh, they're liars over there they're lying in school she's like why are the teachers liars she said well, I had a class today, and the teacher said, there's God. And Daddy said, there's no God. (laughs) So she she must be a liar, and I don't (laughs) want to go there anymore.
0: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so very atheist background. And also, you went to school here, and this is also, till today, it's very secular kind of upbringing and and education.
1: In many ways, the, the, the one thing I was educated... At home, or what I got from my parents is to be very independent in what I think. And to act very much aligned with how I want to be in this world. I did grow up uh, knowing my dad was uh, serving in a very elite uni- unit in the army. And he was involved in many of the notorious, um, let's say, operations that happened um, during the years of Israel he was uh, very much involved in all of the wars and and some of the the things that israel did overseas and as as a kid i think my most combatant or aggressive upbringing is that um as a kid he used to take me to all of the james bond movies that came out <laughs> and he will. He would always tell me, "Oh, like what you see in the movies is, is uh it's just the tip of the iceberg."
0: Like this is what I do. This is how I explain to you what I do.
1: In a way. Yeah.
0: So he, so he was basically in the Mossad.
1: You know, it might it all might be also stories. He's reading a lot, also. <laughs> so going up with this uh, narrative of um, those who are. Good citizens and good people are the ones that protect their families, that protect their loved ones. And as a kid, you grow up and you hear that the way to protect the people that you love is is to join the military. And growing up in a place like this, there was a lot of pressure also to go and to be like a combat soldier. And in a way, like the more um, prestige unit that you get accepted to, it uh, kind of shows your value as a person.
0: And your social status. And your social status. But there wasn't, like, a connection necessarily to, like, the Jewish faith. It was more about Zionism and more about nationalism. And
1: It wasn't even Zionism like, and nationalism. And it was growing up with my dad and hearing, like, his stories. And as a kid, you hear these things. And, and you know, I think most kids looks at, look at their dad as heroes in a way. And yeah. And my dad thing did things that I saw in action movies, and, and I wanted to to kind of follow him and the path that he went. And actually, my mom died just a year before I got enlisted to the IDF.
0: When you were like 17.
1: Yeah. So they kind of they allowed me not to be a combat soldier, because there's a risk to go there, and if you lost a parent, and if you're an only child, so...
0: So they're allowing you, if you've lost a parent recently, not to enlist in a combat unit, mm. but you decided to go to a combat unit anyway, to like volunteer.
1: So I decided to volunteer, and, and this was actually a very interesting shift with my dad, because when I decided to that I wanted to enlist to be a combat soldier, because I wanted to do what all the kids around me are doing, and I wanted to... Play the hero part. My dad actually changed his uh, his whole whole approach, and he told me, listen, over my dad' body, that you're gonna be a combat soldier. I've been enough combat for you, for your kids, and for your grandchildren. There's <laughs> there's nothing cool." about it. There's, there's nothing, there's no respect around it. There's no glory in it. I've seen too many people dying in wars for you to go and, uh, and be part of the system.
0: So when it hits close to home, you'd say like he understood, okay, this is, I'm willing to risk myself, but I'm not willing to risk my kid.
1: And I think he also, being part of the, he raised me very left winged. It was very weird. Like, he spoke Arabic from home here in the farm. We had um, also Palestinian horseback riding teachers. We had uh, a school from Tira, the nearest Palestinian town, that uh, the kids from that school would come every Friday. And it's, I couldn't say that I had Palestinian best friends. But definitely...
0: You were exposed.
1: I was exposed and I was never... I never really understood the whole narrative of all Arabs are terrorists.
0: So this is not something that you were taught in home like uh, they're dangerous, they're our enemy. It wasn't like that.
1: No, not at all. Actually, my dad will tell me like from his time in the service he he told me, listen, where I was, it was only bad people. I had Palestinians working with me, I had Lebanese people working with me, Americans, Israeli. It, wasn't, it didn't really matter because the people who are, who are in this line of work, they're not exactly there for my ideology. They're, they're there because they like the action, they're there because they like the excitement around it.
0: So like as you grew up, the real motives of this kind of system were kind of unfolding It wasn't like when you were a child and it was like James Bond and this is cool and it's action. He kind of started unfolding the real story behind it.
1: Yeah, and I think my my first shift in meeting another narrative was when I was 17. I had a friend who was very political activist. I didn't really understand what politics are at that (laughs) point. And she told me, Sharon, listen, I'm forming a group of... uh, Israelis and Palestinians who are going to go and spend a week together, dialogue, and uh, we're going to meet each other. Do you want to join? And I I told her, like, why why would I want to spend a week with Palestinians? (laughs) And she told me, listen, it's in Austria. There's also, like, Hungarian and Austrian people, and it's free. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I would I would love to come.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Take me abroad for free, no problem. Yeah,
1: sure. I don't care who sits in the room with me and <laughs> spend a week in the lake. Amazing. So this was my first uh, dialogue experience. So the the NGO called the Form of Bereaved Families who are basically a group of families who lost their loved ones in the conflict. Um, they've they've been sending uh, young high school people to these retreats, to these um, programs.
0: Not necessarily if you come from a brave family, like you didn't lose anyone in wars or in anything, and they wanted you to hear the testimonies of people who did lose their loved ones on both sides. Exactly. So it started with the families themselves. Kind of mourning together and doing the most basic thing, which is just like... uh,
1: Having conversations. Having
0: conversation about, you know, we have the same pain at the end of the day of losing someone we love. And then it kind of became more, they wanted to go outward and spread the word and say like, this is what we do and we want everyone to know about it because we want you guys to change your attitudes.
1: Yeah, something Uh like that.
0: Okay. So you went on this dialogue week... What happened
1: there? It was very interesting. Like now, when I look back at it, I see like the, the very smart way it was uh, constructed. But, like in the first day, we all meet. So, it's a group of Palestinians, a group of Israelis, a group of Hungarian, and a group of um, Austrian people. Who also, in a way, have a side in the story and being in the side that caused the trauma for the Jewish people or passing the trauma into the Palestinian people. And then the first day, they they gave us uh, big sheets of paper and they asked us to draw our country. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Very easy task. So the Austrians they draw Austria. They don't really remember exactly how it looks because because <laughs> it's big. <laughs> and the Hungarians, you know, they open like a map and they draw it. And the Israelis, of course, we know exactly how the map of Israel looks like, right? We we study it. Um, yeah,
0: study it very much. Very
1: much. And we draw <laughs> our own country. And we did it first also. <laughs> hmm. And then we see the Palestinians bringing their, uh, their map, and it's exactly the same map.
0: <laughs>
1: and I remember... Like,
0: Without the Golan, the Golan Heights.
1: I think it was That's exactly the, the same map. Really? Okay. At least in the eyes of my <laughs> 17 years old self,
0: it yeah, it's basically the same. It looks yeah. very much the same from a uh, from the first first glance. Yeah,
1: and I remember like looking at it and I'm like, huh, why why are they drawing the same map?
0: Why are they drawing the map of Israel and calling it Palestine? Yeah, <laughs> I
1: didn't I didn't quite understand that. And I'm like you were okay. confused. I was confused. I, I'm very happy that I I didn't really have a political upbringing, so I didn't have any like ideas or thoughts being threatened at that moment. I like, mm.
0: you were just like, "This is weird." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: And the second or the third day, we were asked to uh, showcase the the Jewish Holocaust and what happened over there from our perspective. The Israelis. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we we were excited to kind of share this narrative. Uh, I had no idea it's gonna what what is it going to meet? You know, a resistance or acceptance? I didn't know. I was like, I was very much in my rebellious phase as a, as a kid, and. I remember just sitting there and letting like the very enthusiastic girls of the Israeli group present the Holocaust. And everyone was very, very interested about the story. And when the girls um, stopped talking, one of the Palestinian girls just stood up and asked in a very naive and honest way, "If if they did it to you, Why are you doing this to us? And this is not just me sitting in the side of the room and then seeing all of my friends and my Israeli friends who did declare themselves as like political.
0: And leftist.
1: And leftist. Starting to defend their narrative.
0: They got defensive when she said this.
1: Yeah, they're starting Mm -hmm. to, to explain how the Holocaust uh, is not like the occupation.
0: Like, telling her, like, you shouldn't be comparing. Yeah. This isn't something that you compare, like, that you can compare.
1: And I was just, suddenly I became very curious. I'm like, why, is, why does she think like that? And there was a whole discussion, and most people kind of, at, at some point, just, like, went on to do their thing. And I remember that I stayed with one of the Palestinian kids. We stayed up all night. And I was explaining him about the Holocaust, and he was explaining me about how it is to live in the West Bank. And we both never heard each other narrative. And I don't know why, and thank you, I didn't have uh, this thing in my head that's blocking what he wants to say, and I just accepted it as truth.
0: Like you didn't think like a lot of Israelis do. He's probably making things up. He's probably distorting. He was probably taught a wrong history. Like you just accepted it like that.
1: Yeah. So I remember um, I was very fascinated from what he had to say. And I also had a very strong connection with um, the Palestinian youth guide who was with them, who is today... Well, up until a few months ago, I was the CEO of the the NGO. And I just found a lot of, of curiosity to the Palestinian story.
0: That you had never heard before?
1: Never heard before.
0: I just want to say something about that girl that got up and said what she said. It's interesting that you seeing everybody get defensive especially those people who were defining themselves as leftist and you know willing to engage in dialogue with Palestinians. But once she touched that sensitive topic, they got defensive, and this defensiveness actually made you more curious about, well, maybe she actually means this, and she's not just saying it to provoke or to make a point or to make them angry or to prove her narrative, but really genuinely wondering... How is this possible?
1: Yeah, I don't think I had this uh, sense of internal dialogue at that point. But yeah, I was. So looking
0: back, you can understand that this is what was going on in that room. Yeah. And so you came back after that week, but you didn't feel like you were changed or something. Like you still were define. Could you still define yourself as a Zionist at that point? Do you you still want to go to the army?
1: So I never define myself. A Zionist. I I don't remember a single point in my life when I was like, hmm, "I'm a Zionist."
0: But you didn't define yourself as like, "I'm not a Zionist." Like you never said or thought.
1: I didn't. It was. You know. I didn't really feel feel a lot of uh, discussion around it. Not in my house. Who was like now when I researched my my family history and my grandfather was part of of the Communist Party. He was anti-Zionist. Like now, I slowly understand why I never had this narrative
0: mm. in
1: my house, and and my dad, who served in the Mossad, in many in many ways, he was much more of an anarchist than a Zionist.
0: So it was his service was kind of like more of a way to be an anarchist than really believing in the narrative of the Zionist movement.
1: Yeah, he was there because of um, you know I'm not I'm not proud to say that, but. I think he liked it. He liked the action.
0: He just didn't want to be part of the normal day to day nine to five society. And this was he his had,
1: way. He had a like a fucked up background. He had a lot of violence in his house. He ran away in early age. He went to walk on, on a boat when he was fifteen. Yeah, he was in a boarding school. Like you know, he was a it was a tough kid. So he ended up in where, where tough kids go when the when the country wants them to do the dirty walk.
0: Instead of sit in prison.
1: Exactly. And he did. He also sat in prison for <laughs> some point, like just just to shed a little bit of light. Also, he was also like uh, kicked out of that that place of the unit. Yeah
0: for being too a little too anarchist <laughs>
1: yeah he was uh he was he was supposed to guard um, two French intelligence officers in Beirut um, at the first Lebanon war when Beirut was infested with uh i d f and all kind of foreign forces and he went into a room when he saw the two French interrogators. About to chop a kid's arm in front of his mother.
0: What do you mean, drop? Chop. Oh, chop! Was uh, like with a machete.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh my god! And the dad was like uh, a Hezbollah um, high-ranked uh, something. And my dad just walked in into that scene, and he was he was supposed to be like the security person for the French people and he couldn't really agree with the situation that he saw in front of his his eyes, and um, there was some shouting, and then there was some shooting, and uh, the French people didn't survive that. And then he just caused an international incident when a car of the French uh, intelligence is just chasing chasing him in the streets of uh, Beirut.
0: So he basically killed these two people so that the kid wouldn't have his arm chopped off.
1: Allegedly. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So Uh, this is what he was thrown out of the unit for? Yeah, this was the end of his uh, field service. Wow. Yeah. He told me, you know, and like for me when when I served in, in the IDF I had a lot of friction with just People who are trying to live their lives while I'm part of a mechanism. who Palestinians. Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm part of a mechanism that it's interrupting their life. And my dad will always tell me, like, where he was, there was no good people. He wasn't the good guys. The people he was after was, were not the good guys. The whole, all of the people who are playing that game. There's not a single good person over there.
0: Sounds to me like it's different mechanisms that are more similar to organized crime than they are to a, an army and civilian population. Yeah. More more of that. Yeah. So you were 17, you came back from this dialogue week, and you still wanted to go to the army and you still wanted to be a combat soldier. How, mm. How is that possible? Like how... I'm, th- I'm assuming that a lot of the listeners are wondering like, well, now that you've heard a little bit of the Palestinian narrative and you've realized you know, that they suffer too from trauma and from a lot of things, how are you willing to go and serve in the system that brings this suffering?
1: So I had no idea that I'm going to be part of a system that is oppressing the Palestinians. I was very naive. I'm like, oh, okay. Yes, there's like the Palestinian people who are just humans uh, trying to live their lives. But there's also these quote-unquote terrorists.
0: Like the bad guys. The
1: bad guys. And And these
0: bad guys have to be caught or...
1: It's not even caught. It's just like I I want to be a defensive force.
0: Against these bad guys.
1: Against these bad guys. I want to defend my family. You know, when I grew up, in the '90s, I, I remember there was buses exploding everywhere. I was always kind of checking this, this, uh, the the size of the streets, the public transportation. I was always aware of, oh, like maybe one of the the bad guys are here now. Maybe this bus that I'm going to go up on is going to explode. I don't know.
0: So this is the second Intifada. Yeah. You know, you're living in the relatively central part of Israel. You're aware of the fact that this this actually happens. Yes. And you're not connecting between these bad guys and between the Palestinian people as a whole. Like it's kind of like separate, I guess. Yeah. So you're like, okay, there's these Palestinian people and they're suffering. Were you assuming that, you know, they're paying the price for trying to fight these bad guys? Or was it totally like.
1: I think I wasn't aware.
0: Of the connection between all the things. Yeah,
1: I think only when I got there, only when I was part of being on the ground in the West Bank, opening checkpoints and seeing how, you know, before I open the checkpoint, the movement is flowing, cars are driving, and when we open the checkpoint, there's suddenly a line.
0: And there's and a traffic I, jam.
1: And there's traffic, and, mm. and I see how we are interrupting the life over there
0: like you're talking about the most basic simple thing of just creating traffic and making everything slower and making it more difficult to get from one place to another yeah so you did go to a combat unit even though your parents didn't want you you, your father didn't want you to because why you wanted to prove something to someone or
1: i think you know, also being a person who like lost his grandfather and lost his mother and trying to find ground and connection to my ancestors and also being like a uh, history freak
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I was very romanticizing this uh, this like foot soldier story. This I'm playing this very uh, manly part in history where I'm going in the footsteps of generations of men uh, before me, and I'm going through this very ancient initiation uh, process of becoming a man. You know, like This is what we're told. You become a man, you go to the army. So this was, uh, I think, a big narrative for me to kind of prove my... my manliness that i belong alongside all this, these people that i grew up with they all go to the same place as well
0: you're like part of something yeah that's bigger than you and so you went you're you're a big guy like you you went <laughs> you went you trained you probably got a big weapon to handle <laughs> yeah <laughs> they usually give it to the big guys yeah and you go with this big weapon and you serve in the West Bank.
1: So, at some point, uh, like I, this, the, this big weapon like, really screwed up my knees and I became a medic. So, luckily, before I finished my training, I was already uh, a medic. So, there was in a way a buffer between me and, and reality because I was always kind of behind.
0: You were there to like support if they need medical help. I was physically
1: there, but not uh, most of the times. Not leading the uh, the force.
0: And so you were standing in checkpoints. What were you doing? Were you uh, arresting people? Were you like what was most of that service like?
1: So I think I was a very bad soldier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of anarchist in you, maybe. I I I think
1: at that (laughs) point I was discovering photography and. I was always kind of stretching the the boundaries around me. So I was always with my camera.
0: Even though you're not supposed to document.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I still, I was holding, a lot of soldiers are holding very strongly to the humanity in these cases. You're like, yeah, I'm there. I'm doing these things, but I see the people around me. This is in a way something you tell yourself.
0: You tell yourself, like, if I'm more humane and if I treat... This civilian population in a, you know the best way I can. Then I'm actually minimizing the damage. Yeah. Like it's I'd rather me be here and treat them a little more kindly than someone else be here that's like actually racist and motivated by hatred and you know there to really make yeah. their lives harder.
1: Mm-hmm. So I remember I was threatening the people around me that if they'll do something bad,
0: you 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 were threatening the. The soldiers the around. soldiers your yeah.
1: friends my friends all oh, just random soldiers I'll meet in, in these uh, outposts like if they'll do anything wrong I'm gonna take photos and I'm gonna send it to the leftish people.
0: <laughs> to like B'Tselem and yeah, those organizations exactly <laughs> you were gonna snitch on them to, yeah, like I <laughs> to never, the international community <laughs> exactly.
1: I never did that because I, I didn't really understand how to approach these organizations <laughs> exactly like I didn't I, I didn't have a political point of view at that point
0: like you didn't really believe that this is what should be done you just were threatening them to kind of troll them
1: I think I really believed what this is what should be done but
0: <laughs> but you didn't have the balls to do
1: it. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't understand that I can affect anyone. You know, at this point you you're being trained to be an uh, insect <laughs> in in <laughs> a a, soldier. in a hive. Yeah. And and this and you do what you need to do and that's it. So you in many ways you're in a state of survival. Like I just want to be, go home. I just want this to be finished. Like I remember when when we did uh, uh, the first time, I needed to go into a Palestinian village to to grab someone, to, uh, to no, like para- arrest someone, to arrest someone. Mm-hmm. I remember we were trained from early on in the morning, and and like at some point at night, we we got like two or three hours to sleep, and then they wake you up. And you go into the village and in that point you're so sleep deprived you just want to go back to sleep
0: like you'll do anything to make this go away quickly so you can exactly. go back to sleep just exactly. let's finish this
1: I remember this was like a big operation and uh, and like uh, this this someone was very important and we we need to take and the house is in the third story and uh, like we got very walked up around it. I was also scared. Like suddenly I see faces of people that that we need to find, and we went like a, quite a big force, like uh, a lot of people. We went there, and I was at some point leading the unit that goes up to the apartment that we need to break into, and there was cars and noise and soldiers and people. Like there was nothing stealth about that. There was dogs barking. There was people shouting. This
0: is all in the middle of the night.
1: Yeah, in uh, Nablus.
0: But you look—the fact that you were there kind of woke people up. Kind of stirred things up.
1: I think the, uh, yeah, there's quite a heavy military present uh, presence at that point. And I remember like my commander was telling me like kick down the door. And I'm I'm like half asleep. <laughs> I'm like, why? Trying to understand why? Why you kick down the door? And I, I turn to him, I tell him, listen, I think they know we're here. <laughs>
0: okay, I think they know.
1: <laughs> I, l- like, we can just open it. And he's like, shouts, shouts at me, like, kick down the door. And I'm like, I don't know why, you know, because it's very uh, bad to like refuse a direct order didn't realize I didn't realize and didn't like succeed to bring myself to actually kicking down this door I'm like just looking at him and he, I remember him grabbing me and like pushing me on the wall and he kicks down the door and we go in and there's a scared family over there and I mainly remember this very weird experience of Trying to point, I'm scared. I'm very scared. I'm what are you scared of? I'm in the middle of a Palestinian city, in the middle of the night. There's terrorists, uh, allegedly, around me. And anything can happen. They might shoot me. And I'm looking at this family. And I remember I'm, I'm trying to point my gun at them, as I said, I'm told to do, in the nicest way I can. And it's such a huge <laughs> conflict that's happening in me. I'm You're like trying
0: to point a gun at the, <laughs> the nicest way.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm like with my eyes. I'm. I'm. I'm not speaking the language. And with my eyes, I'm trying to tell them like I, I'm not going to do anything to you. But I need to point a gun to you. And this was uh, not an easy experience. And I remember we were looking around the house, and I see like posters of like, Israeli film stars on the walls. Wow. And, you know, we didn't find anything. And I remember leaving there. I'm like, why, why the fuck did we do that? Like There was nothing there. There was no terrorist. We didn't get anyone. We just ruined this door and, and scared the family. And ever since then, I remember that every time... I went out to an operation like this. I I just fell asleep. Like in really dangerous... uh,
0: What do you mean, fell asleep? Like standing up?
1: Standing up, sitting down, just fall asleep.
0: Wow, that's dangerous. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So at some point they stopped sending me to these uh, things.
0: Ah, because you were falling asleep? Yeah. Was that like a defense mechanism of like, I can't handle this, so I'm shutting down?
1: So today I could say yes. After a lot of work I did on myself. Like today definitely this was a defense mechanism.
0: But then you didn't really understand what was going on. You were just like, I'm tired, fuck this.
1: Yeah, I was just tired all of the time. I'm just tired. So I think this was like a big, one of the big points of me starting to understand, not even if it's wrong or right what's going on here. Like I don't want to do that.
0: Like, it's not a matter of this bigger truth of should we or shouldn't we not be doing this, but I don't want to be part of it.
1: Exactly. And I remember at some point, I found a book, I don't remember even how. It was a very small book and was called My Little Holocaust Thief. And I remember I was interested in this book because it was written by someone in my unit a few years before. Who this guy, whose uh, his family is a Holocaust uh, survivor family, find himself uh, as an officer in my unit in the Intifada, so like 10 around 10 years before me, and um, he's explaining how, as his like his service as a combat officer, he found himself doing things. Like the Nazi officers and the stories he was hearing at home,
0: like what they did to his family.
1: Yeah, and you remember one kid who was so scared of him; she was kind of paralyzed. She couldn't move because she was so uh, Palestinian kid. She was so afraid that she, like, peed herself.
0: She peed her pants. Yeah. Wow.
1: And at that moment. He saw his grandma in that girl. And this guy ended up establishing an NGO called Breaking the Silence. And I remember I just finished reading this book. <laughs> and I was like in my army outpost. And I realized that, oh, my commander probably met this guy. Because he's from the same unit. And he was probably his like uh, soldier. And I remember I was very excited I'm going with this book <laughs> to his office. <laughs> oh my god. Because <laughs> I didn't have this story of of, you know, like, oh, there's traitors because they think differently. I was I was taught at home that all opinions are accepted. And I remember I go to his office with this book and I'm like, Hey, do you know this guy? And he just looks at me, he looks at the book and he gets furious. And he's like, don't ever say this name in this place. He's a traitor. (laughs) And I I just remember walking outside of this office and I'm thinking, what what an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's his personal experience that he wrote a book on. Who are you to say it's wrong? And... It still took me a few years to understand that in order to really heal myself, I can't take part at all in the system. Like To understand, this, it's not just people who are uh, bad in the system, the whole system is bad. But while I was there, I remember all kinds of incidents that I thought, okay, this is fucked up. I think like another breaking point I had is um, after the army, I, I attended a festival called uh, Burning Man. And I remember I, I met a girl over there I, I wanted to impress. <laughs> and I told her I served as a combat uh, soldier in the army, the Israeli army. And she just turned away and went to the other direction.
0: <laughs> Was she's American or...? I don't, don't remember. <laughs> just... <laughs> that's funny
1: and I remember like thinking to myself oh it's not cool <laughs> 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 so slowly after experiencing Burning Man and also starting university uh, art school Betzalel, or like studying together with Palestinians over there as well start producing festivals I remember the last time I was in service.
0: This is like a uh, reserve duty is after you finish your army service and you get called in a few times a year to kind of do yeah, just a few weeks.
1: I just realized I don't want to be there anymore. Why not? I, just, I remember I was standing on a hill and my unit was going into practice and they were about to have like a simulation of a wall, going one week in, in like in nature with heavy equipment on simulating all kinds of scenarios and fights and we're just about to go and they're like calling me and i'm on the phone with a team like that uh like we're working on creating a festival together and i'm solving some drama that's happening in the team and they're like calling me and i just realized what the fuck am i doing i don't want to be here anymore i don't believe in this I don't want to hold a gun anymore, ever, in my life. And I just went to my direct uh, commander over there. I tell him, listen, I'm not coming with you guys. He's like, what, why? I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I want <laughs> I want to go home. And he looks at me, he was, he was a nice guy. He's like, can I ask you, like why don't you want to do this anymore? I'm like, yeah, I, I don't want to hold a gun. I'm done. I'm done being part of the system. And he looks at me and he's like, listen, I'm like, I'm an insurance salesman. (laughs) I, I don't want to be here as well. We need to. And I'm like remembering I'm an only child and only five years after I got enlisted, using my right to not be a combat soldier and I told him, you know what? I don't have to be here. So I'm going home. He's like, I'm not going to stop you. And this was the last time I went into a reserve.
0: How old were you by then?
1: I think I was 23.
0: And since then, do you think your opinions have changed? Like at a certain point did you think about how being part of the system is not only being part of the army how do you think about that today
1: so i always had opinions were leftish who became slowly more and more uh, extreme i was always defying systems uh since i remember myself and also like we're generations of people who are defying systems. But it took me time to understand that I have personal um, responsibility in this.
0: What was, does that mean?
1: I was living my life and naturally, slowly, I uh, started to also have Palestinian friends.
0: What do you mean naturally? How How is it natural to have Palestinian friends if most Israelis don't? Most Jewish Israelis.
1: So, like, I met them uh, through Midburn.
0: Through, like, the regional community of Burning Man.
1: Yeah. And as always, I was uh, very interested in their stories, in their identity, in their culture. We became friends. And slowly I started seeing how the fact that they are oppressed or people are being racist to them on different occasions, I took it very personally. Like, the fact that people are treating them differently.
0: Oh, because they were your friends, so you felt like someone was hurting your friends.
1: Yeah. And I slowly started to be part part of more dialogue actions, dialogue programs... I started going to the Israeli-Palestinian Memorial Day.
0: Which uh, is organized by the Braved Family Forum and the Combatants for Peace Organization. Yes. Which is, that's interesting that it's kind of closing a circle. It's closing a circuit. Exactly. So when you were going to these ceremonies, did you remember that 17-year-old girl who was for asking?
1: Sure. I was... And I also seeing the, my, the youth guide who was with me who became the CEO of the organization and was uh, speaking on stage as like well. Like by
0: now he was, you know, yeah. running the show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow.
1: Um, and I felt very moved and also very connected to to the story that uh, Combatants for Peace uh, were holding, like people from both sides who were part of the fighting that are saying... Um, we don't want to have fighting anymore.
0: So this like s- sounds really beautiful. And at the same time, someone like me, I'm hearing this and I'm saying like, so both sides shouldn't be fighting anymore. But the status quo is that the Palestinians are living under Israeli occupation. So even if some Israelis decide not to fight... The Israeli military is still operating, but if Palestinians decide not to fight, they're still living under occupation. And this is like the, this is to me the problem, like the root of the problem, I guess you'd say, because people can decide not to fight and just have things stay the way they are, but the way things are, aren't peace and aren't justice. So is this something that you were kind of. Thinking about at that time, or?
1: So I remember I was thinking about the th- these things, but I was very much involved in creating underground art and uh, doing community work and working on the Midburn Festival. And I was very focused like, this is my.
0: This is your life now, the art.
1: Yeah, this is my life. This is my uh, activism. This is. I'm trying to create. Uh, a culture, a better world coming from the ground up. that
0: A culture of people thinking independently. Yeah. It's very much a lot what it's about.
1: That, that radically I- include everyone. <laughs> also also Palestinians.
0: Was um, it really including Palestinians?
1: <laughs> well, I thought it is <laughs> before I knew better. And at some point in my journey, um, I think around... Three years ago, I was invited to a very special event. So I was kind of out of the whole Midburn experience out of being like part of organizing it. And I was seeking something else. And I was invited to this event called uh, the Middle East Jam. In Jordan, I always wanted to go to Jordan was in Wadi Ram, a beautiful red desert in the south of Jordan. And I spent a week with people from Gaza, Palestine, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, um, many places around the Middle East. And we were talking about identity, about our narratives, about our own uh, feelings and experiences as as humans. Not necessarily it wasn't political, it wasn't about the conflict. And the first time I met people who were very much like me, who were from this region. And, you know, I was always kind of trying to find myself, like, uh, outside of this place. Spending time in Germany, spending time in Europe, in the States, like, trying to find... An escape, because this—it's not an easy place to live in. And in this week in Jordan, I felt more at home than I ever felt in Germany or in the United States or Holland. And I realized I'm—I'm I'm part of this place.
0: Like when you say this place, what do you mean? Like this—this this place you this grew region. up in? This region, the Middle East.
1: The Middle East. Mm. Like this is this is where I belong, this is where I need to be. And I remember after having this extremely transformative event, like I left this event with a girlfriend, and people who are now like partners and and very close friends in life. And I asked like one of the, one of the guys over there, uh, a guy named Liel Magen. Like, where are all of these people? Like, where can I continue meeting these people?
0: <laughs>
1: and he told me, like, Sharon, no, like, there's no there's no community. It's not like you're Midburn. There's no community of these people. Like, there's, there's these events here and there.
0: There's these individuals who share your interests and also kind of more political involvement. Yeah, but they don't have like a real, actual home, like organizational home.
1: Exactly. And I remember, like, having a very deep wish to 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 continue the journey with these people, to continue meeting them. And I didn't want to wait until I find another of these retreats, so uh, I can find people like that. So I organized. Um, like a gathering in Sinai, in Egypt, on the beach. And I just called, basically called all the people who hold Arab identity that I know <laughs> and invited them to Sinai.
0: <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> That's where I met a lot of these people as yeah. well. But there weren't any Palestinians from here at that point.
1: So this, this th- you're touching exactly <laughs> because another, they're not allowed in Sinai. You're touching exactly uh, one of another like breaking and shedding the, the Israeli Jewish Zionist whatever narrative of of going up in this land. Um, I remember telling some of the people there that um, like, it's a shame that there's no Palestinians here as well. <laughs> And uh, (laughs) my friend, Samira, was just sitting next to me. And she's like, she's one of my best friends. And
0: And she's a Palestinian citizen of Israel.
1: And we know each other for years.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And she's like, telling me, Shoran, can can I have a war with you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. So you're saying there's no Palestinians here, but I'm Palestinian. And I'm (laughs) like... Looking at her at this <laughs> point, feeling a little bit stupid. I'm like, really? I've never heard you talk about this part of your identity. And she's like, okay, yeah, but this is who I am. I'm Palestinian. And I realized like how much there is that I don't even know. And and through the process of of trying to discover people in this land who wish to be free from the constraints of, of all the regimes around here and have so much in, in common. So for me, slowly walking this path of, of trying to get to know these people and, and trying to build community, it in a way uh, sent me to a journey where I had to shed Whatever identity I was holding of uh, Sharon the Israeli, in order to, to be able to do that, you know, to be accepted, to, to be accepted, to be met in a vulnerable way. And I realized that every step I'm walking to the direction of, of uh, the people who are holding all these different identities, every step I take, I take into the West Bank. If I truly want to meet people in an honest way, I, I had to shed a lot of the, the things uh, that I was thinking, the, the fear that I had every time accepting to, to go into the West Bank and slowly the fear is just shedding. And when the fear slowly disappears and the wound starts to heal a little bit, and you to really succeed succeed to see the people the people over there. You know, as human be human beings that just wanna live their lives. They don't wanna be oppressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They wanna be able to It's
0: that simple and it's really amazing how it takes us decades to realize this yeah. simple thing.
1: It's it it is scary, you know, to go into a village like when I met at uh, ahed tamimi and the tamimi family
0: you have a portrait of her and her father here in yeah. your house that's so beautiful <laughs> i just want to say for any of you who don't know who ahed tamimi is 2017 i think it was she was like 16 years old or 15 years old yeah. and she slapped a soldier an israeli soldier um in this demonstration Nabi where she lives and she was arrested and it became like it, the story blew up. So uh, you should Google her if you haven't heard of her.
1: I remember when I went there to uh, take take their photos and I went into Nabi Salah, who is very known for being like a very dangerous place and just driving over there, you know, just...
0: Dangerous for Israelis.
1: For Israelis, just driving. <laughs> I mean, also for house.
0: Palestinians in, in yeah. when the when the army is there. yeah,
1: And sitting with them and talking and being hosted by them in a very beautiful way. And I remember the whole interview was in Arabic. And the last question that uh, the interviewer I was with asked ahead is, how was it to slap that soldier? You know, that soldier who just seconds away uh, shot her brother and hurt him really bad.
0: Oh, right. That's that's why she was slapping him. Yeah. mm yeah, and
1: that's the only thing she answered in English. She looked to her uh, to her eyes and said, "It was great. You should try it." You know, I I back then and today, like I don't believe in violence in any way, but I I I was feeling very connected to to this, you know, rebellious personality.
0: Yeah, she was just a teenager who
1: just wants to break everything, who just sees the injustices and, and, and wants to fight them. And, and it's such a shame that there's, there's people, there's leaders in this land who are taking these young people and their pain and their struggle and their, their, their immense power to act in, in a very free and radical way and they take all of this energy and channel it into violence. You know, they they take us, the Israeli Jewish people, and they put us in uniforms and give us guns. They take the Palestinian kids into the streets to practice violence in many ways. And these people who are are manipulating the youth of this land are uh, are very bad.
0: (laughs) I do think there's like a difference, though, between violence will never, you know, lead to anything better. But I do think that the Palestinian youth are doing, you know, what they're doing and and going out to the streets because they have no choice. They have, a lot of them also have nothing to lose, which is also part of the story. Like, when you're that oppressed and you're living in these conditions, maybe even going to the Israeli prison is not that bad. And, you know, especially if you can... You can get your like feeling of vengeance kind of fulfilled, and then you know.
1: I I completely understand them. I don't have any. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy to the manipulated youth, and and I, and I see the struggle. You know, and I see, obviously I see the Palestinian struggle but still like violence is never the answer like today for me to take part in demonstrations uh, together with combatants for peace and seeing the 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 huge power and huge potentials to to non resistance to see in a way when there's a group of of jews and palestinians and internationals that stand together and refuse to take part in in the violent circle and refuse to strike back even if they're being hit by the police or by the IDF. And also being a photographer in that place, you know, documenting this, documenting in a very, very clear way, this is not uh, in any way a symmetrical fight. This is not, a fight where both sides are, are using violence. Like this is here in front of you, captured by me. Um, you know, uh, oppressing forces of a racist government, attacking people who believe in peace and freedom. So for me, at least, uh, also in the like the media person point of view, I think it, it's very strong to fight in a non-violent way. It has A wider effect and it's you know you you can't try and tell a different story when there's someone who's not being violent being attacked by uh, the government
0: I think though that part of the problem is that there is a lot of like non-violent direct action in the Palestinian struggle and there has been you know throughout the whole struggle in history a lot in the first intifada as well that I've been learning about and It's very easy to oppress a nonviolent direct action struggle with force. And the more these nonviolent actions by Palestinians were oppressed with force, at a certain point, it was like they were being pushed to the corner. And, you know, anything that they did that was nonviolent just met more and more force. And I think to a certain extent, the Israeli government and the Zionist regime are even more scared of the nonviolent acts than they are of the violent acts. Like, I think BDS is such a taboo word in Israel because it's so efficient and it's so nonviolent. Exactly. It works and it's not using any physical force and it's not killing anyone and it scares Israel to our bones. And that says a lot about why all the nonviolent resistance was suppressed, like was oppressed so badly.
1: Nonviolent um, resistance is working, it worked historically. I'm sure that violent resistance worked in more cases throughout history. Um, I, I can just say that for me, for, as a peace, act, peace activist, um, I am hoping that if the struggle and the conflict here will arrive to a point of extreme violence from all over, I'll choose to get the fuck out of here. As much as I'm holding the Palestinian cause very close to my my heart and linked my own faith with the fate of Palestinians here, you know, I chose to not hold a gun anymore, and I chose to walk in the path of nonviolent. So, yeah, I hope not not to to take part in this if it happens. So today I'm an artist, and I'm a photographer, and I create spaces of uh, transformation and change during the last decade of my life, and this is where I choose to, to try and, and affect the people around me, and trying to, to struggle in this uh, struggle to end the conflict, and to live in a, in a free society.
0: What do you fantasize that will happen to end this situation?
1: I think in order to end the situation, we need to build a shared culture. that is based off, you know, human rights, (laughs) the right for freedom, the right for people to identify themselves, uh... You know, religiously or identity-wise in any way they choose fit.
0: So like you're dreaming that people can live here one day freely with equal rights but can identify as Palestinians or can identify as Israelis or that's what you're saying?
1: Yeah, or gay (laughs) or whatever they choose to. And I think for that to happen, we need to build a critical mass of people who who think that way and practice this culture between each other because, you know, we live in a world that still we play the game of politics and we play so-called games of uh, democracy in this land. And if we'll have a mass of people that can, uh, you know, choose and elect the people who are going to create this reality. That's the only way uh, towards creating a free culture through negotiating, through a- acting in a non-violent way.
0: And a lot of Israelis hear this and they say, well, if we grant you know these rights to millions of Palestinians then we won't be the majority anymore and then they will do us they will do to us what we are doing to them or they'll be oppressive in some form, you know, and we'll just be we'll just go back to be, you know, the Jews who are persecuted like we used to be throughout history as a minority in the world. Like is that something that you fear? You share that fear?
1: Yeah, but from a whole other perspective, I think it's it's funny that because of this fear We're becoming, like we're creating this reality. If we would have given them in 48 or in 67 um, full rights, uh, I'm not sure if we were in the same situation today. And if we're going to continue oppressing the Palestinian people, we are going to create this reality because we are a minority in this region. This is what I'm saying, uh, at least to my fellow Israelis. You know, if we're destined to rule this place, if the Jewish people are destined to lead this place, it doesn't need to be by force. Like, like
0: you're saying, we if we were being good enough, then we would be granted the leadership because of the respect that people have for us. Like that could have been <laughs> yeah. maybe a... Like you're talking about... Um, Governance and uh, how people grant you governance as opposed to how you take it by force. Exactly. So you're hoping that one day after all of this happened, there is some way that the Palestinians and generally people in the Middle East will grant us a place uh, with, with respect and with um, honor in this region. You think that's possible at this point? I,
1: I hope so. <laughs> it's funny I'm <laughs> hearing you speaking, and I, and then like, you're like,
0: "That's not possible." <laughs> no,
1: I'm like, I don't feel comfortable with this term "us." You know, I I feel so far uh, down the rabbit hole, uh, like.
0: Oh, you I'm, don't identify as like part of the Jewish people, the Israeli people?
1: Not really. Like my family, if I go to my father's side, my family's here. Way before this was Israel, like it was much before the
0: Zionist movement. You mean
1: exactly? Way before the Zionist movement, they were not part of the Zionist movement in any way.
0: But they were Jewish.
1: They were Jewish. They were Palestinian Jewish, and they spoke Arabic at home. And I go to my mother's side. They were Christian before coming to this land. <laughs> so, yeah, my grandma kind of chose to come here, and my dad grew up in a country that suddenly a bunch of Europeans came to her and called it Israel.
0: But they kind of um, aligned with this. I mean, the the people here, even if they were from the more different backgrounds that you described, like your family, they still very much aligned with the Zionist uh, project.
1: My dad, yes. Mm-hmm. My mother's family never, was were never really aligned with it.
0: Even though like they came here to help the Jewish people establish a you know, Jewish state.
1: I remember showing you protocols for my grandfather, uh, the Communist Party. I was continuing reading in it. Hmm. And suddenly I was start, started to read the um, protocols that deal, like, how are we going to resist the, the partition uh, law? How are we going to... Res- the partition resi- plan. The partition plan, Of exactly.
0: 47, hmm
1: like the, and there's whole, all kinds of speeches there and protocols of them stating how colonial and horrible the, the partition plan is and how it's going to bring the devastation for any future for uh, Arabs and Jewish in this land together. So I wish I could have a conversation with my grandfather and the political views that I have today.
0: Cause, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Some people might be able to reach him for you. <laughs> you know, some uh yeah. people who communicate with the with the dead.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So do you feel like your identity is Israeli at this point? Do you you not you don't call yourself Israeli? Because I feel like if if someone had to ask me like, Oh, who's your friend Sharon? I would say, Oh yeah, he's a friend of mine and, and he's Israeli, just like me.
1: Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, in some circles I'm Israeli.
0: Even with, you know, your name and your accent, do you feel there are circles where you're not considered Israeli?
1: Only in my head, you know. Sometimes I'm I'm Sharon from uh, Israel. Sometimes I'm a Yehudim in Palestine. (laughs) Sometimes I'm a Dutch person who grew up in Israel, you know. It really depends. I feel at home in Holland or Germany, the places where uh, my mother's family is coming from. I feel at home here. I feel at home in the West Bank.
0: At this point.
1: At this point,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) I don't believe in these made-up boundaries. That that tried to find me, like, you know, as an Israeli now, I need to hold the responsibility for everything that's being done in the name of my government.
0: In the name of your people, in the name name of of you.
1: Yeah, you know, like, before Corona, (laughs) at the end of the world, I used to spend a lot of of time in uh, Berlin. And... You know, I, I would approach sometimes by someone like uh, from a Syrian or Lebanese or whatever Middle Eastern background and he's like has a lot of emotions about me because I'm I'm Israeli and putting a lot of blame uh, at me. Obviously I understand it, but I usually ask a very simple question like Do you agree with your leaders? Do you support their actions? So, why should I? Is it that far-fetched to imagine that there's people living in this land who strongly disagree with the leaders, the politicians who run this country and actually do quite a lot to, to oppose it and, and try to change the, the, the political awareness in this land in order for things to change? And usually the reaction is <laughs> is uh, all kind of uh, vari- varieties of uh, shock.
0: They're in shock that you say that you're opposing what your government does. Yeah. I mean, Israel is perceived as a place where its people are very much aligned with the government. And there is a truth to that. A lot of the people here are very much aligned. And they've probably met Israelis in their past who were very aligned and very, you know, defensive about Israel. I understand, like, where they're coming from because there's not a lot of Israelis, I guess, who could say to someone, you know, abroad, no, I actually really don't believe in what's going on here. I I think it's wrong. (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) I'm sure you still have friends that you're in touch with, you know, from your past, from your army service or whatever, but how do people react to the things that you say or you do and i know you like post on social media the the photos that you take from demonstrations and have you gotten like backlash have people told you oh you've gone too far (laughs) is that something you encounter
1: yes but i have a lot of compassion to that i understand i challenge a core perception of people and I understand it takes time. So, I'm I'm almost happy that I'm getting reactions like that. Sometimes, because I see I, I, I am not preaching to a choir.
0: So, you're thinking, well, if people are reacting like this to me, maybe I'm actually having a certain effect on them, even if they're not showing it right now.
1: Yeah. Like, there's one story I'm holding very close to my heart, and... In a way, it kind of helps me navigate in this realm. and so it's quite a big story in my family. And my grandfather, he, he used to give lectures about uh, Israel in Germany in the, in the 70s. And in one of these lectures, um, it's funny... Like going back a little bit, my grandfather was very much communist and anti-government at some point found himself uh, working for the foreign affairs uh, ministry. <laughs>
0: That's where you find yourself if you're anti-government, <laughs> in this place. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. and um, he. So in one of the talks he gave in Germany, uh, when he stepped out, there was two uh, neo-Nazi kind of young people who tried to jump him to attack him. And the last minute, the uh, police grabbed him and like threw him into the police car. And he walked into the car and he told them, listen, if you want to meet me face to face, I'm going to be here next month. Same day, same time. If you come in into the lecture, I'm going to go out from the back door. You could meet me there. And a month after that, he saw them in the audience. And he went back from the back door, and they were not there. And in the coming months, he started seeing them coming into his talks. And fast forward 10 years later, when he's already uh, a diplomat uh, living in uh, Germany, they were living here in this village in their house babysitting like my mom and her uh, brother when they were kids for 8 months.
0: Oh, they became his friends and they came to visit here and stayed with you guys.
1: So I, I was my Yeah,
0: like stayed with your family.
1: Yeah, while my grandfather was in Germany, they they
0: stayed. Oh, they came to <laughs> He trusted them so much after trying to jump him that he would let them stay here and babysit his children. Yeah. That's crazy. How did that happen? Like what what happened? They just s- listened to his lectures?
1: I think he had a mission to kind of go into people's hearts and 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 create a transformation over there. And so
0: that makes you believe that you can do the same.
1: Yeah. I think the work of showing people the humanity of the other side, and then even evoking a sense of uh, responsibility for each other, eventually, as you know, as humans, we are codependent in each other. And and if we can help more and more people and bring more and more people to the awareness, like they are responsible. For each other's fate like there's no evil warlords who are controlling us and there's nothing we can do about it and even if some people think that they have this this power like historically um, the people can rise and the people can can take leadership and, and change
0: yeah, I can really resonate with that, like trying to show your humani- humanity even to someone who wants to kill you no matter if, you know, if you're the oppressor, if you're the oppressed, you know, we're still interconnected, no matter where you are on the, you know, on in the, on the totem pole, I guess. Yeah. And how does your father react to all of your activism and your...
1: <laughs> <laughs> My father is a very unique... Uh... Snowflake.
0: <laughs> I mean, you also said that it, it was less out of the Zionist ideology and more just of him finding where to fit in with his like anarchist. Yeah. Kind so of
1: character. my my dad, you know, my dad like is a very very leftish uh, political perspective, but also like zero fate in systems. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so he's just like everything's fucked. Like this.
1: everything's fucked. Yes. He's like, I know most Palestinians want just to live their lives. I know most Israelis just want to live their lives. The system is so fucking evil and corrupted. And they're all hostages. And they're extreme people that are in power. They want violence. And our people were extreme and in power... They want violence, and it's a vicious circle that you know. He spent all of his life in. He he does not believe that there's a solution to this. You know, he told me like the, they're not they're not gonna get you because you're not a threat.
0: <laughs> what do you mean?
1: Like the, these systems of power, you know. You're like you're not a threat to anyone yet, so you're safe.
0: Mm.
1: But if you're a threat. Like they can just deal with you, and uh, yeah, they're gonna tell that they're looking for you, and there's gonna be some story. And everyone will be very sad. But
0: so, is there anything that you'd like to say that I haven't asked? You know, as a do you have like a, a message that you really want to give? Something that you want to end with?
1: I think for. Everyone's hearing this and want to be a force of good and a force of change in the very, very toxic and violent um, reality that we have here. Reach out to us and reach out to the people who wants to create something different here, wants to fight for freedom, fight for the end of the occupation. You know, both in the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. Because I don't see any other way for us to change it without walking together from the inside and from the outside and using everything in our power united to end the conflict.
0: Thank you, Sharon, for sharing all of this.
1: Thank you, Av.
0: It's been a pleasure to get to know you a little better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's it. Thank you Sharon so much for sharing your thoughts and your feelings and your experience. Thank you Roy Geva for the beautiful music that you're listening to right now and that you heard throughout the episode and in the beginning of the episode. And thank you for listening.